Okay, hi everybody. Welcome. I'm thrilled to see such a huge crowd tonight. This is amazing. Happy week one. Happy first reading of the new writing series. Uh, And welcome to the UCSD Library. Um, We are so excited to be uh, hosting this series for the literature department this year. Um, And I'm so excited to hear Dr. Craig uh, Santos Perez read tonight. And I'm sure all of you are as well. Um, just a few little things I want to mention to begin with. Um, my name is Nina Mamakunian. I'm the literature librarian as well as curator for our archive for new poetry in our special collections. We are recording tonight's reading for the archive, and it will be available in just a few days through our library catalog. Um, because we are recording it, uh, we're going to have a Q&A afterwards, and we have mics to pass around for the Q&A. So if you do have a question, um, please wait for the microphone to reach you. A um, couple other things is it's, I know it's very crowded in the back there, um, and you can hear from outside, so if you want more space, you can um, stand outside. Bathrooms are in the back over there. If you do need to um, leave because of a class before the reading is over, try to use the door that is least disruptive um, to the reading. And I believe that is about it for me, and I would like to introduce Professor Kazim Ali. Yes. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Um, And thank you uh, so much to Nina and the library for um, always being supportive of the new writing series um, in general, uh, but to literature in particular, one of the most important archives in contemporary poetry uh, in the country, maybe in the world, I don't know, um, is here at um, at the um, UC San Diego Library. So uh, we we love to do this partnership with the library here. And thank you, all of you, for coming. Um, I'm so excited to welcome Craig Santos Perez to UC San Diego. He traveled here from Hawaii, where he is a professor um, at the University of Hawaii. Um, so he's come a long way to be with us here. We're really grateful. Um, he is a poet that is engaged in a multi-volume ongoing long project entitled From Unincorporated Territory. That's the uh, main title, and then each volume has a separate subtitle. One of them uh, was for sale outside, which I think is sold out, or is still, there's a couple left. There's still a couple left. Sage is over here listening to the reading. Um, And that title from Unincorporated Territory refers to the legal status of the island of Guam, which is uh, where Craig Santos Perez is from. It's a legal status that has changed and shifted over the last 150 years from the colonization by the Spanish and then through a series of occupations and shifts in legal status under the U.S. government, which finally crystallized for the moment, anyways, in 1950 legislation that granted Guam residents citizenship in the U.S., but not enfranchised congressional representation nor votes in the Electoral College for president, so unrepresented citizens of the United States. At any rate, in various sequences that run across these individual volumes and thread through the series as a whole, he explores and outlines the political history along with the zoological and botanical history of the island, its pre-industrial age naval technologies, the attempts to, attempts to revive those lost arts and sciences, 
uh, its interactions with the range of 19th and 20th century European and Asian colonizers. And he considers all of that vexed and politic political and historical context while he engages with the personal and family history and autobiographical experience um, in poems engaging the indigenous Chamorro culture and language um, in Guam. He uses the space of the page in unconventional and innovative ways, often scattering the poem in different architectural patterns. We, I think of them like islands, or like an archipelago of words on the page, something like what Charles Olson called open field composition. For example, the one example that I always use when I teach Craig's work is a sequence that travels tracking the presence of non-native species of brown tree snake that literally snakes its way along the bottom of pages that have other texts and poems on the main body of the page. They're not footnotes that are usually meant to provide a citation or a justification or elucidate marginal points from what would be considered, you know, quote-unquote, the main text. Rather, the text above and the undulating snake underneath are merely two different kinds of texts that share the same space and, of course, necessarily refract, reflect, and diffract meaning through and against one another, like the indigenous culture and the colonialist um, presence in the island. Of course, Charles Olson considered the in with, within his context the American of the American imperial imagination um, could consider the space to be empty, or could consider the American landscape to be empty. When he said, "I take the central fact of America to be space," meaning there's nothing but here between the eastern seaboard and the Pacific, but which, which we know, of course, is anything but empty, filled with many people, but who did not register in European racial consciousness. So Craig Santos Perez approaches it from a different perspective. He talks about the way that Tongan anthropologist Apeli Hauofa argued about that the, the, the perspective of the Pacific Islands as tiny, remote, isolated, poor, and dependent is the colonialist perspective. And this perspective correlates to the imperial desire to only see terrain as much as insofar as the terrain has resources that can be extracted or that the terrain has features that must be navigated for military purposes, like what hill is the highland, what harbor is the deepest, so the boats can, the battleships can be harbored there. Instead, Haofa talks about the Tongan view of a deeper geography that includes what he calls transoceana as well. So the land that includes the underwater terrains and even includes the overhead terrain of the sky and the stars that enabled the crossing of vast oceans in ancient times. So through this mix of critical theory, documentary poetics, and persona poems, Perez embarks on what can be seen maybe as a reclamation project, bringing a sense of agency uncoupled from the colonial and supposedly post-colonial identity. Um, and indeed, the legislature of Guam has recognized him as a cultural ambassador. And he, along with other activist scholars and artists from Guam, have testified, attended and testified um, before committees um, in the United Nations on, on conditions um, in, in, in Guam. Uh, I think when I think about Craig's work, I think of what Myung Mi Kim was talking about when she wrote about 
what when other people look at the distressed poem or the poem in fragments, a poem that uses multi -modal, multiple modalities or multiple voices or multiple approaches on the same page, do you think about that poem as shattered or fragmented, or do you think about it the way Myung Mi Kim wrote about it, which is she said this, the poem may be said to reside in disrupted, dilated, circulating spaces, and this is the means by which one notates this provisional location that evokes and demonstrates agency. So I think always, I'm always going back to Gloria Anzaldúa, and I think when, when I think about this work, I think about her concept of the role of the mestiza in the borderlands, because rather than a restoration to some pure ideal that existed before the influence of the colonizer, Anzal Dua talks about constructing a new and intersectional foundation, one that accommodates and even privileges ambiguity and difference. In a sense, the borderlands, to me, is a queer space and a femme space. She writes of La Mestiza, and I think that the figure in in Craig Santos Perez's work is, is, is a figure like this. Uh, only by remaining flexible is she able to stretch the psyche horizontally and vertically. La Mestiza constantly has to shift out of habitual formations from convergent thinking analytical reasoning that tends to use rationality to move towards a single goal, a Western mode, this is Anzaldúa's um, comment, to divergent thinking characterized by movement away from set patterns and goals and toward a more whole perspective, one that includes rather than excludes. And that's what this work is to me, inclusive, inclusive work. So we're excited to welcome Craig Santos Perez to our space at UC San Diego. Kind of, we think about it in the immediate sense as the borderlands, La Frontera, but of course, historically and anciently, it is not a borderlands. It is the ancient and historic home of the Kumaya people, and it transcended that very new national border that runs 30 miles to the south of us. So we're, we're in uh, historic and uh, powerful, vexed, complicated, transnational, and perhaps sacred space. Um, so please, thank you. Please and thank you, Craig, for coming and joining us, and please welcome Craig Santos Perez. Half a day. Aloha. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I can't believe how many people there are here. My mom's not going to believe me. <laughs> So I want to take a video, and I'm going to ask everyone to cheer and clap loudly <laughs> for three seconds. You ready? Go. Okay, now I want you to boo. And tell me how much my poems suck and how cliche they are. Ready? Come on, you can do it. Get off the stage! <laughs> y'all are crazy. <laughs> now, thank you for coming tonight on a Wednesday. I know y'all are really busy at the start of the semester, and I really appreciate your presence here tonight. Uh, thank you, Cosm, for that beautiful introduction. I've been such a fan of your work for so many years, and I, I really appreciate your support. Thank you to all the departments and programs that co-sponsored tonight's uh, event. 
Um, extra credit for everybody. <laughs> uh, of course, I also want to uh, acknowledge the Kumeyaay people, uh, offer my own blessings and respect to their ancestors and future descendants. Uh, as an indigenous Pacific Islander myself, uh, even though I live in the Pacific now, I lived in California for 15 years of my life. Uh, mostly in Northern California, I really got to learn more about the Ohlone people. And I wrote this poem, the first poem I'm going to share tonight, is called Interwoven. And I wrote it for Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's kind of a reflection on uh, Pacific Islander and Native American uh, relations that I kind of learned while I was here, but never had a chance to learn back, uh, back in Guam. Interwoven. I come from an island, and you come from a continent. Yet we're all made of stories that teach us to remember our origins and genealogies, to care for the land and waters, and to respect the interconnected sacredness of all things. I come from an island, and you come from a continent, yet we both know invasion. Magellan and Cook breached our reefs after Columbus raided your shores. They baptized us in disease, violence, and genocide. We continue to carry the deep grief of survival. I come from an island, and you come from a continent, yet we both know the walls of boarding schools. They punished us for breathing our customs and speaking our languages. They forced us to memorize the imperial curriculum of fear and silence. I come from an island, and you come from a continent, yet we both know desecration. They extracted minerals, trees, wildlife, and food crops for profit. They stole and renamed our lands and waters, and we continue to inherit this intergenerational trauma of loss and removal. I come from an island and migrated to your continent. Hundreds of thousands of us have settled in your territories for military service, education, healthcare, and jobs. We're so busy searching for better lives, we didn't ask your permission. We didn't even recognize how our American dream was your American nightmare. Native cousins, I see you across this vast, scarred continent, reviving your languages and cultures, restoring native schools and tribal governments, planting heritage seeds and decolonizing your diets, blockading pipelines and protesting mining, fighting for renewable energy and sustainable futures. Native cousins, I see you dancing, chanting, drumming, rapping, writing, researching, publishing, animating, filming, and revitalizing your ancestral stories. I hear and honor your stories. I come from an island, and you come from a continent that you call Turtle Island. And as we gather today, let us share our stories of hurt, stories of healing. Let us hope seven generations from now, our descendants will continue interweaving our struggles. Let the stories we share today carry us towards sovereign horizons. Thank you. So this next poem is perversely related to that poem. Um, and it's called Thanksgiving in the Plantational Scene. 
Thank you, instant mashed potatoes. I should say this is based on my actual Thanksgiving. <laughs> True story. Thank you, instant mashed potatoes. Your bland taste makes me feel like an average American. Thank you, incarcerated Americans, for filling the labor shortage and packing potatoes in Idaho. Thank you, canned cranberry sauce, for your gelatinous curves. Thank you, Ojibwe tribe in Wisconsin. Your lake is now polluted with phosphate discharge from nearby cranberry bogs. Thank you, crisp green beans. You are my excuse for eating dessert a la mode later. Thank you, indigenous migrant workers, for picking the beans in Mexico's farm belt. May your bodies survive the season. Thank you, NAFTA, for making life dirt cheap. Thank you, Butterball Turkey, for the word butterball, <laughs> which I repeat all day. Say it with me. Butterball. 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 Because it helps me swallow the bones of genocide. Thank you, dark meat, for being so juicy. No offense, dry and fragile white meat. You matter too. Hashtag all meat matters. Thank you, 90 million factory farm turkeys, for giving your lives during the holidays. Thank you, factory farm workers, for clipping turkey toes and beaks so they don't scratch and peck each other in overcrowded dark sheds. Thank you, Stunning Tank, for immobilizing most of the turkeys hanging upside down by crippled legs. Thank you, stainless steel knives. Thank you, scalding hot defeathering tank, for finally killing the last still conscious turkeys. Thank you, Turkey Tails, for feeding Pacific Islanders all year round. Thank you, Empire of Slaughter, for your fatty leftovers. Thank you, dear audience members, for joining me at the table of this poem. Please join hands. Bow your heads and repeat after me. Let us bless the hands that harvest and butcher our food. Bless the hands that drive delivery trucks and stock grocery shelves. Bless the hands that cooked and paid for this meal. Bless the hands that bind our hands and force feed our endless mouth. May we forgive each other, May we forgive each other. And, be forgiven. and be forgiven. Amen. Amen. You can give yourselves a round of applause for that. That's good. <laughs> so this next poem is called Off Island Chamorros. And that's what back home we call Chamorros who migrate. They go off island. And uh, I migrated uh, with my family when I was 15 years old from Guam to Northern California. And I was a sophomore in high school. And since then, I've been lucky enough to travel around uh, the U.S. and visit diaspora Chamorros. Uh, some I've met in this room right now. And others all the way from, from New York to Kansas to Washington, Texas. And I wanted to write a poem for us, the Off-Islanders. 
Off-Island Chamorros. I remember the entrance to the Guam airport resembles the shape of Isakman, an outrigger canoe, once described as flying proa because it swiftly skims the waves. I remember waiting to board our one-way flight on Continental, the name of the airlines, the name of our destination. We waved goodbye to our relatives as we crossed the gate, my blue passport in my hand. I remember the first day at my new high school in California. The homeroom teacher asked me where I'm from. The Mariana Islands, I answer. He replies, I've never heard of that place. Prove it exists. Yet when I step in front of the world map on the classroom wall, it transforms into a mirror. The Pacific Ocean, like my body, split in two and flayed to the margins. I find Australia, the Philippines, Japan. I point to an empty space between them and say, I'm from this invisible archipelago, my homeland not even a dot on this map. Everyone laughs, and even though I descend from oceanic navigators, I felt so lost, shipwrecked on the coast of a strange continent. Are you a citizen, my teacher probes? Yes, my island Guam is a U.S. territory, I answer. Yet I don't have the courage to explain how we attend American schools, eat American food, listen to American music, watch American movies, play American sports, learn American history, dream American dreams, and die in American wars. You speak English well, he surprisingly proclaims, with almost no accent. And isn't that what it means to be a diasporic tomorrow, to feel foreign in a domestic sense? Over the last 50 years, Chamorros have migrated to escape the violent memories of war, to seek jobs, schools, hospitals, adventure, and love, and most of all, to serve in the military, deployed and stationed to bases around the world. According to the 2010 census, 44,000 Chamorros now live in California, 15,000 in Washington, 10,000 in Texas, 7,000 in Hawaii, and 70,000 more in every other state and even Puerto Rico. We're the most geographically dispersed Pacific Islander population within the U.S., and off-island Chamorros now outnumber our on-island kin, with generations having been born away from our ancestral homelands, including my daughters. Some of us will be able to return home for weddings and funerals. Others won't be able to afford the expensive plane ticket back to the Western Pacific. Years and even decades might pass between trips, and each visit will feel too short. We'll lose contact with family and friends, and the island will continue to change until it becomes unfamiliar. And isn't that too what it means to be a diasporic tomorrow, to feel foreign in your own homeland. There are times when I still feel adrift without itinerary or destination, when I wonder, what if my family stayed? What if I return? When the undertow of these questions pull me out to sea, remember, migration flows through our blood like the aerial roots of Nunu, the banyan tree. Remember, our ancestors taught us 
how to carry our culture in the canoes of our bodies. Remember, our people, scattered like stars, form new constellations when we gather. Remember, home is not simply a house, village, or island. Home is an archipelago of belonging. Thank you. So, of course, when, when my people, and I'm sure when all your peoples migrate, uh, the one thing we often take with us is our food, yeah, our food cultures. And, you know, traditional foods can make us feel back at home no matter how far away we are, yeah? And in Chamorro culture, our most traditional food is Spam. <laughs> goes back for millennia. <laughs> it's my favorite food, and actually Guam, what we're most famous for is that we eat more Spam per capita than any other place in the world. <laughs> and if you actually go on the Hormel website, you'll see there's a little like celebration of Guam and Chamorros for, for how much like we keep them in business, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I teach a class on food poetry and do a lot of research around like food sovereignty and food colonialism. Um, and I wrote an essay once called Uncle Spam Wants You. It's all about the like military and colonial flavors of spam, um, and in my research, there are whole books about spam. And in my research, I was so surprised to know that there, that spam actually means spiced ham. It's like neologian spiced ham spam, but it's also an acronym. It means salted pork and more, <laughs> or super pink artificial meat or specially processed army meal, or some Polynesians are missing. Where do they go? They're in Vegas. Uh, <laughs> just like, <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, this poem is, is a, a poem about spam. It's called The Zen of Spam, because I personally find spam very meditative, and this poem is, is made up of nine koans, which is like the Buddhist riddles that are help to help you meditate on it and you reach spamscendence, I mean transcendence. <laughs> so what I'm going to ask you to do, they're all very short. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, put your hands on your bellies, and listen carefully. Try to meditate on these. There's a lot of wisdom here. The Zen of Spam, one. When you eat Spam, what are you eating? Two. <laughs> there is no path to Spam. I'll tell you. There is no path to Spam. Spam is the path. Three, what is the sound of no spam frying? <laughs> Four, what is the true taste of spam? Five, spam is the absence of striving 
for spam. Six, it's for the MFA students. Does a poem have spam nature? Eunice. <laughs> Seven. Why aren't you eating spam, you ask me? I reply, I no longer see spam as outside. Why eat? <laughs> Number eight. For the ethnic studies students. Is America spam? Last one, number nine. First, there is spam. Then, there is no spam. Then, there is. <laughs> I actually brought a can of spam with me as display, but I ate it on the plane. <laughs> American Airlines, that's why. They don't serve no food. <laughs> okay. Um, so my grandma also loves spam. It's intergenerational. Um, and one thing that's, to me, one of the most difficult about uh, my family's migration is, is the family we left behind, and in particular, my grandma. And we didn't, I didn't get to go back home for 15 years, and partly because it's so expensive to travel from California to, to Guam. And so I didn't see my grandmother very much. Um, and I was lucky I got to see her last year. And uh, she passed away uh, maybe a few months after I visited her. And so I wrote this poem kind of in, in her honor. So I just wanted to share it, share it tonight. And she loved bingo, as all Chamorro people do. <laughs> and so this poem for her is called The Patron Saint of Bingo. I should say she lived till uh, 94, no wait, 96. Yeah. It's all that spam keeps you. <laughs> Long life. Um, just kidding. The patron saint of bingo. Bingo is not indigenous to Guam, yet here we are in the air-conditioned community center next to the village Catholic church. You turn 95 years old this year, the eldest Manumco in this room. I help you set the bingo cards and ink daubers on the table. You sit in your wheelchair like an ancient sea turtle. This has been your daily ritual, daily prayer. But the last time I played bingo with you was 25 years ago when I was a teenager and still lived on island. When you won, you never shouted bingo too boastfully. And when you lost, you simply said, Agupa, tomorrow will be lucky. Either way, you always smiled. Here, no one punishes you for speaking tomorrow. Here, no war invades and occupies life. Here, no soldiers force you to bow to a distant emperor or pledge allegiance to a violent flag. Here, no nation steals our land. Here, you're safe to play and gossip. We watched the bingo balls turn in the wire cage like the large beads from a broken rosary. I no longer attend mass, yet here I am praying to the patron saint of bingo 
to call your fateful combination of letters and numbers. I pray for you to win not for the rush or sin of money. I pray for you to win because you carry so much loss. Having outlived Grandpa and all your childhood friends. Suddenly, someone else shouts bingo. You sigh, put down the ink dauber, sink back into the shell of your wheelchair. When's your flight, you ask me? Agupa, Grandma, tomorrow. When's your flight, you ask me? Agupa, Grandma, tomorrow. But today, I feel so lucky for this chance to play bingo with you one last time. Thank you. Okay, this next poem um, actually takes place in Hawaii, uh, where I've been living for the past 10 years. And unfortunately, Hawaii, like Guam, has suffered from many uh, invasive species coming and uh, endangering the native bird populations. And so this poem is dedicated to a, a native Hawaiian bird called the Kauai O'o whose song was last heard uh, in 1987. And the poem is called, The Last Safe Habitat. I should say it's also dedicated to my daughter. I don't want our daughter to know that Hawaii is the bird extinction capital of the world. I don't want her to walk around the island feeling haunted by tree roots buried under concrete. I don't want her to fear the invasive predators who slither, pounce, bite, swallow, disease, and multiply. I don't want her to see paintings and photographs of birds she'll never witness in the wild. I don't want her to imagine their bones in dark museum drawers. I don't want her to hear their voice recordings on the internet. I don't want her to memorize and recite the names of 77 lost species and subspecies. I don't want her to draw a timeline with the years each was first collected and last sighted. I don't want her to learn about the Kauai O'o, who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree calling for a mate day after day, season after season, because he didn't know he was the last of his kind until one day he disappeared forever into a nest of avian silence. I don't want our daughter to calculate how many miles of fencing is needed to protect the endangered birds that remain. I don't want her to realize the most serious causes of extinction can't be fenced out. I want to convince her that extinction is not the end. I want to convince her that extinction is just a migration to the last safe habitat on earth. I want to convince her that our winged relatives have arrived safely to their destination, a wondrous island with a climate we can never change and a rainforest fertile with seeds and song. Thank you.
Okay, this is my last poem. Um, it's called Chanting the Waters. And it was a poem. Uh, we did a, an event in, in Hawaii, uh, a solidarity kind of fundraiser for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe when they were um, fighting the, the pipeline. And so a bunch of, of artists and writers and activists got together just to raise some money to donate and, and show our support. And I wrote this poem for, for that event. And it kind of was triggered by, by that fight and that water struggle, but it also connects to other water struggles in the Pacific, Guam, Hawaii, as well as uh, globally. Uh, so it's called Chanting the Waters, and it's for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and water protectors around the world. Uh, I do need your help performing this poem. So when I do that, I need you to say water is life. Because our bodies are 60% water. Because my wife labored for 24 hours through contracting waves. Because water breaks forth from shifting tectonic plates. Because amniotic fluid is 90% water. Because she breathed and breathed and breathed. Because our lungs are 80% water. Because our daughter crowned like a new island. Because we tell creation stories about water. Because our language flows from water. Because our words are islands writ on water. Because it takes more than three gallons of water to make a single sheet of paper. Because water is the next oil. Because 180,000 miles of U.S. oil pipelines leak every day. Because we wage war over gods and water and oil. Because our planet is 70% water. Because only 3% of global water is fresh. Because it takes two gallons of water to refine one gallon of gasoline. Because it takes 22 gallons of water to make a pound of plastic. Because it takes 600 gallons of water to make one hamburger. Because the American water footprint is 2,000 gallons of water each day. Because a billion people lack access to drinking water. Because women and children walk four miles every day to gather clean water and carry it home. Because our bones are 30% water. Because if you lose 5% of your body's water, you will become feverish. Because if you lose 10% of your body's water, you will become immobile. Because our bodies won't survive a week without water. Because corporations privatize, dam, and bottle our waters. Because plantations divert our waters. Because animal slaughterhouses consume our waters. Because pesticides, chemicals, lead, and waste poison our waters. Because they bring their bulldozers and drills and drones. Because we bring our feathers and lay and sage and shells and canoes and hashtags and totems. Because they call us savage and primitive and riot. Because we bring our treaties and the declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples. Because they bring their banks and politicians and dogs and paychecks and pepper spray and bullets. Because we bring our songs and schools and prayers and chants and ceremonies. Because we say stop, keep the oil in the ground. Because they say, shut up and vanish. Because we are not moving. Because we are not moving. Because they bring their police and private militia. Because we bring all our relations and all our generations and all our live streams. 
because our drumming sounds like rain after drought echoing against our taut skin. Because our skin is 60% water. Because every year millions of children die from waterborne diseases. Every day thousands of children die from waterborne diseases. By the end of this poem, five children will die from waterborne diseases. Because my daughter loves playing in the ocean. Because someday she'll ask, where does the ocean end? Because we'll point to the dilating horizon. Because our eyes are 95% water. Because we'll tell her the ocean has no end. Because sky and clouds lift ocean. Because mountains embrace ocean into blessings of rain. Because ocean, sky, rain fills aquifers and lakes. Because ocean, sky, rain, lake flows into the Missouri River. Because ocean, sky, rain, lake, river returns to the Pacific and connects us to our cousins at Standing Rock. Because our blood is 90% water. water because our hearts are 75% water. Because I'll teach my daughter my, our people's word for water, Hanum. Hanum, Hanum, so the sound of water will always carry us home. Water is life. Water is life. Water is life. Awesome. Thank you. Mahalo. Okay, everyone. Hey, Craig. Oh my God. Thank you so much. That was amazing um, and transformative. We're going to move into our question and answer period. So, um, yeah, some folks are sneak out if you need to sneak out. Otherwise, we're going to move straight into the question and answer period. And because we're recording, as I mentioned, there's two mics in the room. So you just got to raise your hand high and one of the mics will find you. Okay. Well, thank you for asking the first question. Um, I guess for me, it depends on, on the poem. I think if, you know, like the poem Off Island Chamorros, that was more, more narrative, and I kind of wanted to tell a longer story, so um, kind of felt like low tide to me a little bit in terms of the rhythm. Uh, with some of the other poems, you know, I use a lot of like repetition um, to make it feel and sound more chant-like. 
and you know, I felt like that that kind of structure gives it more of kind of a continuous wave kind of feeling. And so, you know, of course, they're more lyrical as well, yeah. And so, I guess that's kind of how how I think about rhythm and and pacing and the flow. Um, you know, I have other poems that are more more kind of still water. They're more abstract and expressionist. And those are more like poems for the page. So I didn't read any of those tonight. Um, but of course, you could buy my book. And <laughs> no, but because I'm, you know, because I was sharing orally, I wanted to to read poems that had uh, different kinds of rhythm to them, and maybe sounded sounded a little bit more embodied, I guess. But thank you, I appreciate that. Mm. Oh, nice. But I wanted to ask, uh, coming from an incorporate territory, we have contradictions. Yep. It's an incorporate territory in my country. It's libre asociado, mm. free associated. Mm-hmm. So what is diaspora literature? We're not, there's more people off of our islands than on Yeah. Are we part of American literature, or is there now going to become an unincorporated sense of literature? <laughs> That's a deep question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's exactly that's exactly right. We are the kind of unincorporated hauntings of the American literary canon, and um, you know we're kind of taking the language and, and the genre, you know, kind of doing our own thing with it. Especially plenty uh, Puerto Rican diaspora Puerto Rican poets, especially in the East Coast. <laughs> uh, uh, and you know who I really like New Yorkian style, nothing like it ever in American literature. So you know I think that's true, true for tomorrow literature too. Uh, folks from like poets from American Samoa who who are on the West Coast, I think that's true also. Hawaii is an incorporated territory, so called a state, but I think also they don't fit neatly into categories. And so you know I think it's up to a lot of scholars. You know, some teach here at this university, uh, thinking about how you know the kind these kind of non-continental, unincorporated, uh, discontiguous spaces uh, kind of influence and inform or will inform our, our, our studies of American literature, our understanding of America, the idea of the frontier, which keeps going, yeah, and you know thinking about relationships between uh, the continent continents or the continent and the islands you know thinking about relations between like archipelagic literary uh, conceptions as well so you know they're not quite ready for us obviously <laughs> but but we're here and and our stories matter and you know I feel a lot of you know plenty of Puerto Ricans in Hawaii too and so there's a lot of connections you know, of course, Guam and Puerto Rico both being colonized by Spain as well, I think, connects us uh, more than even other places in the Caribbean or the Pacific. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, first of all, thank you very much for sharing your poems with us. And um, kind of going off that point, um, it seems like right now there's a lot of breakthrough, but in your personal history, who so we can like get a better idea of the Chamorro and Pacific Islander literary traditions. 
who are some of the people that you've drawn, drawn influence from, either from the Pacific Island diaspora or from other island movements? Yeah, great question. Um, definitely inspired by a lot of Hawaiian writers. Um, Hanani K. Tras, in particular. Uh, another poet, Brandy Nalani McDougall. Uh, <laughs> who's my wife? <laughs> She's that good. <laughs> um, so those are definitely like two Hawaiian writers I, I love. Uh, quite a few Samoan writers, too, that are important to me. Uh, Albert Went and Sia Fagel. Fagel. And there are plenty... Plenty of writers that live that live here in the states. Uh, Kathy Jetnell Kijner is an awesome Marshallese poet and former student of mine. Uh, Teresa Sianatonu, who she's been touring California, maybe she'll get get come out here. Um, so those are kind of the young guns. And so, you know, for me, I just love all our voices. To be honest, I've been lucky enough to to travel around the Pacific to get to know the different writers and different styles and. Even meeting folks out in, in Tahiti who, you know, write in their own native language but also in French. And so thinking about connections across like the Anglophone Pacific and so-called Francophone Pacific. Um, so yeah, but similar themes of like cultural identity, decolonization, uh, spam. <laughs> it's the Uber theme in Pacific literature. Uh, yeah, thank you. that that brought up for me is that often in poems, especially dedication ones, um, we seem to evoke our ancestors. Hmm. Um, and I was wondering what you personally thought are the responsibilities or even the limitations or blessings of, you know, incorporating our ancestors in our present moment while still calling back to memories right. about the future. Great question. Um, for me, at least in my books, I have several long poems about my, my maternal grandparents. And what was nice is that they actually migrated with us. They kind of followed. And um, so I got to kind of sit down and talk story with them. And, you know, go over to their house, bring dinner, and they tell, you know, they could talk story for hours. It's always the same story. <laughs> uh, so maybe that's where I get the repetition from. <laughs> but then one day, you know, I just started kind of like writing their stories, like kind of composing it in my mind and then writing it down on paper. And I had a great experience with both of them where, you know, they would share their, their life with me. I would write it, write the poem, and then I would share the draft with them to see what they thought about it. Um, and then I eventually ended up publishing the poem, and partly it tells of their experience during World War II, because Guam was occupied by uh, the Japanese military, and so kind of telling their memories from the war, very traumatic, and, you know, so I, kind of, I wrote their stories, like, kind of in collaboration with them. It wasn't really interviews, it was just really us talking, and that was really powerful, because when my first book was published, I had my grandfather's story. And he was so proud when he read it and he saw his story in there. And, and it was very emotional because he like put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, thank you, boy. He was calling me boy. Uh, he's like, thank you, boy, for telling my story. 
they can never take our story from us. And that to me was, was so deep. Um, and, you know, I'll kind of never forget that moment. He passed on a few years ago also. Um, and then my grandmother, she sadly started experiencing uh, dementia, and then now she has Alzheimer's. And so she doesn't remember anymore, the, the, even the stories of her life that she told me. And so when she started losing her memory, what my mom would do, my mom would actually like read my poem to her, and she would kind of remember it was her life. And so to me it became, you know, that to me kind of spoke to the importance or the power of, of poetry as memory, especially when someone is losing their memory. And of course we know with oral stories, right, it, they could be lost within a generation. They're very fragile unless they're transmitted either orally or written down, yeah? Um, with that poem I wrote tonight, the bingo one, that was really hard to write because I wasn't able to go back home for her funeral, so just my dad went. And my dad's like, can you write a poem for the funeral, to be read at the funeral? <laughs> that was so, and I didn't know what to write, to be honest. And that was the poem that came out. It was a very simple poem. Um, and, but my dad, my auntie actually read it at the funeral, and they said it was a perfect poem because, you know, it really captured her kind of joy, her everyday joy, playing bingo every day. Um, but it was also, you know, very, like, emotional, like, very sincere. And so people were crying and laughing a little bit, and they, you know, because they all know she, she played bingo all the time. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes there are poems we write for our elders or for our ancestors that are kind of epic life stories that will be passed on forever. And sometimes they're just very simple poems about small moments we've had with them that will stay with us and we want to capture. So, um, you know, to me, it's very meaningful. And, of course, in Pacific literature, many ethnic literatures in general, that intergenerational theme so important. And we, we held our, have such respect for our elders, and they have such love for us, too. So, yeah, thank you. Right, right. Great question. Um, I'm going to tell you a secret. But sit down because it'll blow your mind. <laughs> what is MAPS spelled backwards? Drop the mic. <laughs> Spam for anyone who didn't get it. <laughs> what? That's crazy. When I realized that, my life changed forever. I was like, I must understand this like strange coincidence of the English language. <laughs> um, in all serious seriousness, yes, maps are very important. They weren't so much important to me when I was younger, necessarily, but definitely once my family moved to California and having that experience <laughs> in my new high school where the teacher's like, I don't believe the place you're from exists. 
Show me on the map. And you know the map where the Pacific is basically like cut into, yeah? And the Atlantic is in the center. And so, so that's one feeling. And then not being able to find where I'm from because it's not even on the map. Like that to me was very, it was very traumatic in a like, not a violent way, but like a deeply symbolic kind of way. And I felt so invisible. And I know many people, many islanders, many ethnic folks feel that way too, I'm sure. Um, and of course, there, those are you know colonial kinds of maps that make you feel invisible. Or there are the maps, colonial maps, that map your islands simply for how they can be exploited, yeah? For like where they can put the Air Force base or the landing strip or the harbor. Um, and so... For me, maps can be very symbolically violent, and I wanted to decolonize the map and create new maps and indigenous maps. Um, and of course, indigenous peoples, we have maps too, yeah? They're the stars in the sky. You know, they're, they're wave patterns on the water. Um, they're, you know, different birds that we associate with a certain island. If we know the bird is nearby, we know we must be close to that island too. Um, and then, of course, people are maps, landmarks for us to guide us home. Uh, stories are maps as well. And my favorite kinds of maps actually are what we call song maps. And these are like Pacific navigators will have to memorize these songs. And sometimes the songs will include like the, the stars or different birds or different islands. And before you went on the journey, you have to memorize the, the song because it was also a map, yeah. And so, to me, that's very powerful. Um, and I think stories and poems, when they're about real people, you know, like my grandparents, those give us, you know, kind of the human map in a way where if you look at the map, it's, it's usually aerial, and you see, and everything's abstracted. But to me, the human story, it's more like from the ground up, yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I play with in my work. And I kind of use a lot of visual elements, too. So I kind of try to design a, a page of poems as if it's a map, as if maybe the words are islands, perhaps. And a sentence is an, is an archipelago. Um, and the white space is the ocean. So, yeah. But really, though, spam and maps? <laughs> you want, can I tell you another secret that will blow your mind? Okay. It's kind of visual. Um, the word ocean. O-C-E-A-N. Yeah? I'm going to rearrange the letters. C-A-N-O-E. What? <laughs> Canoe and ocean have the same letters. <laughs> Spam and maps. <laughs> Is I say. Anyways, <laughs> thank you for that question. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming here. How was your journey? <laughs> it was pretty good. All right. <laughs> first question I want to ask is on form and performance. Uh -huh. 
um, when you are writing a poem, do you, because like whenever I hear a poem, I sort of imagine the structure of the poem, like the line breaks, the breaks. Like when you perform or you write a poem, do you think more about how you structure it visually or when you like, like orally say it? Like do you space it out a certain way when you say it or how you do it on the page and that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, usually for me, I guess it depends on the poem. I think if it's a more narrative poem, then I'll work the spaces on the page and think about line breaks in that way. If it's more of a lyric poem, then I'll think about it more orally and where it's you know, think about ending the line on the sound as opposed to an image or, or a phrase or something. Um, I do a lot of poems that are visual as well, and in that sense, it's it's purely visual, not really based on sound. So I kind of I think it's fun to try out different modes, different forms, and you know, write narrative poems and lyric poems and visual poems and see what happens. Sometimes the story or the content of the poem will, will, for me, shape the form or give me ideas about the form. Um, so if it's a, a poem about waves, I might shape it like a wave. And that's pretty fun. Um, yeah. And the second question is sort of a, it's an odd question, I think, but uh, when, you, when you write, like, what is your primary purpose? Like when you tell a story, like in a poem or you do anything you want to do in a poem, like, do you do it for the sake of uh, telling your experiences and your stories to different people, sharing that part of yourself or that part of your culture? Or is it to, like, just get people to understand each other, mm-hmm. to understand history, to understand the way people have lived and died and all that? Mm-hmm. Like, what is your biggest purpose in writing? My biggest purpose in writing is to make money. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag fail. <laughs> uh, my, I think definitely my my main purpose, or the thing that drives me, is, is really to to share my people's stories. Um, you know, in a lot of Pacific literature, we think of literature as a vessel, as a canoe that carries our, our memories and our histories, our myths, our uh, stories, our politics, our food, um, our experiences, our migrations, our traumas, our hopes, our dreams. And so, you know, whenever I start writing a poem, it's like a new journey. And... You know, I kind of navigating my way through, through the meaning of the poem, through the words, through whatever, um, you know, whatever destination I'm, the poem is trying to take me to. And often that does have to do with, you know, as I mentioned, kind of honoring my people and telling our stories, and then advocating for um, the political decolonization of of my homeland and and of you know the environmental justice in the Pacific. And so it's all mixed together. Um, you know, also I just love writing because it's, it allows me to be creative. And at least for me, it's pleasurable and fun. 
And I feel like there's so much destruction and, and pain and difficulty in the world today that we need to find the things that give us joy, that make us feel creative and make us feel alive. And to me, poetry does that. And so, you know, I hope all of you have something that, that makes you feel passionate and, and resilient and able to express who you are and something that, you know, will inspire and empower you to, to keep telling your stories. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Great question. Um, well, with my Thanksgiving poem, it just butterball is such a great word, <laughs> and it just like slathers the tongue. And I wanted everyone to feel that, and that just like happened in the moment of the poem. Um, for the water's life poem. You know, maybe that felt a little more more political, where I wanted all of you to say Water is Life and to shout it as loud as you can. And maybe, I'm sure all of you already feel that way. Um, but I think it, it's very empowering when you get to shout it to a room, within a room where everyone else is, is doing that too. And it makes it true and real. Um, so sometimes it's on the first draft. I have another spam poem that calls for audience participation in a very kind of sexual way. <laughs> I didn't do that today, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like the participation. When, when it feels appropriate and meaningful. Um, and I gotta say, this was probably the best audience I've ever, ever had a chance to perform with. Um, nobody booed <laughs> during the reading. And, and y'all were really loud and, and on point. And I really felt your energy and it gave me energy, uh, especially with the last poem, which is long. So thank you for that. And yeah, I think you know poetry is, is, is always more fun when it's when it's collaborative, whether it's writing an exquisite corpse with someone else or other people, or having a, a oral performance in which you know other people kind of complete the performance. Yeah, thank you. It's because spam is very greasy and it has like <laughs> it's a lubricant. It can be a lubricant. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I just had a, a question because I was thinking a lot about your other work that got into different types of notes. So like particularly not just like the visual poems, like the way you play with line breaks and that kind of thing, like you do on Twitter. But um, thinking particularly about advocacy and Pacifica poets in terms of thinking about um, like Catholic literature, how she does the Dear Mapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapapap
advocacy to pursue on the political right. sense, and um, does that necessarily affect the way in which your work is Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, thank you. Great question. Um, it definitely, I read a lot of political poems, um, and tonight I shared some, like, what I call solidarity poems. And those are literally poems I wrote for activist events. And so that, knowing the venue and the purpose definitely shaped how I wrote the poem. And I wanted it to be very accessible, um, to be kind of a rallying cry, yeah, and then to make these connections. And... You know, that's a very different kind of poem than a poem I would, you know, I wrote for my grandmother's funeral, you know. And, of course, different than a poem I would write for the page that is more for my own, like, conceptual um, um, aesthetic pleasure or whatever. And so, to me, that's exciting because there are so many political venues now that want to feature poets. Um, because, obviously, novelists are boring. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, but the poem is nice because you could do like a two to four minute poem at the be- you know at the beginning of the event, and it could help like humanize a a difficult political topic. Um, it could make it more personal, especially if we're talking about climate change poems. It could take all this abstract data, right, and make it real and make it uh, make it more grounded, and so. You know, some of these poems that I write for activist events, I won't necessarily put in my books later. You know, they were really for that event, for that occasion. Um, and I shared it here, obviously, because I wanted to honor, uh, you know, being on native lands here. Um, so, you know, for me, it's exciting. Like, you know, I know there's so many protest movements that you know, really need the creative component and they need the arts and the music and the painters to come through and help imagine, um, you know, help imagine the movement, yeah? And when we talk about, like, creative nonviolence, right, we got to make sure we have that creative part as well uh, in our movements. And, you know, so that's kind of what definitely does reshape the poems, uh, makes them a little simpler, more direct. Um, I try to make it more lyrical so it, it still sounds good even if the message is, is not as complex as, let's say, the poems from my books. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed them. Um, one of the reasons why I really, really like your um, poetry is that they're really funny. There's a lot of dark humor to it, and I, I really um, find that to be very engaging. Um, I was wondering how you saw the role of laughter in Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I love humor in, in indigenous literatures, and it's usually cast as kind of a trickster figure, and the humor is usually subversive, kind of a decolonial humor. And I've always loved those kinds of stories. And in Chamorro culture, we have our own trickster story, Juan Malo, which I write about in my books. Um, and I think it's a great way for 
to kind of subvert, you know, power structures or to question power structures and to laugh at them. Be like, you don't control me, I can laugh at you, right? Um, though I laugh at spam, but it still controls me, that's okay. <laughs> and so to me, you know, humor is a weapon, you know, so-called weapon for, of the week, yeah? It's a way that we can fight back against these huge structures that make us feel powerful um, through our humor, through our laughter. And so obviously there's a lot of dark humor too. Um, I think in, you know, for a lot of indigenous peoples, we live very ambivalent lives. And if sometimes we don't laugh at some of the crazy things, then we'll, we'll be very, very depressed. And many of our people are, yeah, and end up, you know, having high rates of suicide. And so to me, I feel like humor, you know, it's a coping mechanism as well. Helps us get through the difficulties. Um, so I guess that's that's kind of where I try to insert humor where it feels appropriate. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> Did you like my spam poem? That was that was for you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. All right. We got one more. Last one. Um, thank you so much for your reading and just your work. Um, I just wanted to ask a question because one of the things that you're very well known for in your poetry is eco poetic and thinking about that. So I'm just curious to hear um, how you think about the kind of aesthetic form of poetry and what it can do for thinking about environmental justice, um, kind of thinking about what kind of um, particular like, kind of um, political goals or could be forwarded through this kind of particular aesthetic of poetry and thinking about the kind of way in which you conceptualize the Awesome. Thank you. Um, so it's funny because pretty much every Pacific writer writes about the environment. But we never knew it was called eco-poetry until all these anthologists and editors have been like, send us your eco-poetry, we love your eco-poetry. I'm teaching your book in an eco-poetry class. <laughs> I was like, I am now an eco-poet. <laughs> uh, so, and for those who don't know, eco-poetry is just poetry about the environment, about nature, about wilderness, about food, about animals, about interspecies relations, about environmental justice, ecology, climate change, etc. I teach classes on eco-poetry, um, and I'm editing an anthology on Pacific literature and the environment right now. And so, you know, for me, part of it is because it was just a huge theme in Pacific Lit. Obviously, growing up on a small island, you're surrounded by the ocean, uh, the jungle, and it's just an everyday part of life. You're also sadly surrounded by military fences and... Uh, aircraft carriers and F-52 or F, uh, F-52 bombers flying over like every couple hours. You know, every day we live with another relative who has cancer, who dies from cancer because, you know, most likely because of environmental pollution and toxins. And so, so much of Pacific eco-poetry and literature is trying to reestablish and re-narrate the sacredness uh, 
of our lands and waters and to to re-narrate the idea that the environment is our relative and our kin and if we care for it, it will care for us. Um, and then so much of us, you know, we write about environmental justice issues, environmental impacts of militarism and tourism and urbanization and, and now climate change. Um, and it gives us a space to, to kind of mourn and to grieve and, you know, also to hope and to imagine sustainable futures. Um, so, you know, that's kind of my next book coming out next year is actually all eco poetry. And so, you know, I'm hoping that more and more poets will will focus on these topics and more and more universities will teach eco-literature, eco-criticism, the environmental humanities, because like, this is an urgent issue that all students need to be educated in. Um, and, you know, poetry, literature becomes a powerful kind of symbolic space for us to, you know, not only increase our environmental literacy, but, you know, to really talk about how these changes in the environment are impacting us personally and culturally um, and how kind of it can bring us all together and hopefully, you know, inspire folks to, to join the climate movement wherever we're at. So that's kind of where, where I'm coming with. And I'm, I'm glad we ended on that note because I think it is an important note. Um, thank you again for, for your attention and your participation, your questions. Good luck this quarter. Just nine more weeks to go. You can do it. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Please come back in three weeks on October the 23rd for um, nonfiction writer Amy Berkowitz. And on Wednesday, November 17th, um, Catherine Factor, author of the Choose Your Own Adventure novel, Matahari. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, thank you guys.